If you join me in Bible study tonight, please open up your Bibles to the book of Romans to chapter 11 as we begin in verse 26. Verse 25 referred to until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, until the times of the Gentiles are complete. And the times of the Gentiles are complete, are finished, when Messiah returns to establish the Messianic kingdom on earth. So that's where Paul has focused this right now in Romans 11 verse 26. That's when verse 26 is fulfilled. Not 2,000 years ago, not 500 years ago, and not today. But when Messiah returns to establish the kingdom. Verse 26 it says, And so all Israel will be saved as it is written, quote, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So when it says in verse 26, all Israel will be saved. There are people who say, see, we don't have to preach the gospel to the Jewish people. They're all going to be saved anyway. Does it say all Jews will be saved? No. Does it say all Jacob will be saved? No. It says all Israel will be saved. Not all who are called Israel are Israel. Who tells us that? Paul does. Just, yeah, in this very same book. Israel was not Jacob's name. His name was Jacob. God changed his name to Israel when he came to faith in God and had a personal interaction with God. So it says all Israel be saved. That means all those who come to saving faith in Messiah will be saved. And that's when all Israel will be saved. It's when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Let's go read the original of the quote, which is from Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah chapter 59. I've been told, and it's true, when you read scripture, you've got to make sure you know the context. Because context is so very important. In Isaiah chapter 59, the topic is, Messiah, the Redeemer, is coming back to Israel, to the city of Zion, or Zion in Hebrew, prophetic Jerusalem. And it's verses 20 and 21. It says, the Redeemer, who's the Redeemer? That's our Messiah Yeshua. He's going to return. Did you know that? He's going to return. He's going to return soon. Ezekiel 43 explains as he walks from the Mount of Olives through the eastern gate into the temple itself. That's what we're talking about here. The Redeemer will come to Zion, or Zion we say in English. And to those who want, turn from transgression in Jacob. That's who Israel is. Those who've turned from transgression turned back to the true and living God to grab hold of him, to accept the death, burial, and resurrection of our Messiah, Yeshua, in their place. To those who return from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. So now we know what covenant we're talking about. My spirit who is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. So what is this covenant he's talking about here? 
Talking about the new covenant. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 41, 31. Jeremiah 31. Don't get too excited, Wayne. It's hard for me not to get excited. Jeremiah 31. I'll start in verse 31 because verse 31 and verse 33 are two different time periods. One's already been, the other's yet to be. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. See how the word days is plural. Make sure you note that. When I will make a new covenant, a renewed covenant, the Brit Chadashah, with the house of Israel, with the house of Jacob. Who's the new covenant with? House of Israel and with the house of Judah. What about the non-Jewish believers then? They get grafted into Israel. That's right. Verse 32, not according to covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand, leading them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Now, here's two, two differences you notice between verse 31 and 33. This covenant is not with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. It's with the house of Israel. Because when Messiah returns, the house of Judah and the house of Israel get merged back into one nation. Never to be separated again. Not two nations anymore. Never again to be two nations. And the second is that this happens after those days. So verse 31 took place 2,000 years ago when our Messiah Yeshua was crucified and said, my blood is the blood of the new covenant. Every covenant must be sealed with blood. Messiah's blood he shed on Calvary's tree was the blood that sealed the new covenant 2,000 years ago. But it doesn't come into its full fruition until verse 33. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. After those days when Messiah comes and establishes a kingdom on earth, what do you know about all Israel? All Israel will be saved. That's Romans eleven twenty six. That's where we came from. Says the Lord, I will put my law, my Torah in their minds and write it on their hearts. In the old covenant, the commandments were external written on tablets of stone. In the new covenant, they're internal, written upon our hearts and upon our minds. Not anymore, we have to do it or punishment. It's we get to do it out of love. And I'll be there, God, and I should be my, my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I'll remember no more. This is the fulfillment in Romans chapter 11, verses 26 and 27. So let us come back to Romans 11. We know what it means so all Israel will be saved. All those who were not saved perished during the tribulation period, right? All that remain will be believers. Give me another scripture from Isaiah to prove that. Did you say chapter 4? Yes, let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 4. Isaiah 
Well, the people in going to meeting land didn't know nobody raised a hand, so, <laughs> okay. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. <clears throat> in that day, what day? Day of the Lord. I'm tap dancing while you keep turning pages. So we're all on the same page. In that day, the day of the Lord, the branch of the Lord, that's a term for Messiah. Shall be beautiful and glorious in the fruit of the earth, that is, those who have become believers. Shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped, have escaped the tribulation period, came through alive, saved by the precious death of our Messiah, Yeshua. And shall come to pass who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. How many? Everyone. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, that's the seven-year tribulation period. The Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night for over all the glory there will be a want. A covering. What's that word? Chupa. Chupa means a wedding canopy. Who lives under the wedding canopy but the bridegroom and the bride? And there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat, from a place of refuge, and for a shelter from storm and rain. So let's go back to Romans 11. Verse 26, we know now what it means, so all Israel will be saved as it is written. Why does Paul always say, as it's written? What does he use for support? Oh, he doesn't say, because I said so. He says, let's go read the prophecies. This was prophesied by Isaiah how long before Messiah was born? About 700 years before Messiah was born, maybe a little more. From our perspective, 2,700 years ago. So it says the deliverer will come out of Zion. Who's the deliverer? Messiah. When was he ever in Jerusalem? He was crucified there. He was buried there. He was resurrected there. And he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And Jacob becomes all Israel. For this is my covenant, that is the renewed covenant, the new covenant, the brichadashah, when I take away their sins. Is there anything in verses 26 and 27 that suggests that Israel can continue in their sins and God will just forgive them anyway? No, when I take away their sins, they repent, they turn back to God. Where do we read that in the scripture? Their repentance. They're saying, come, let us return. That's in Hosea chapter 6. So let's turn back and add Hosea chapter 6 in here. Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. Let me give you a chance to find it. Hosea chapter 6, verse 1.
come, let us return to the Lord. What does it mean to return? To repent, to turn around, to come back to God. For he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. That is God's promise when they want, when they repent. Where does God promise that he will restore them without repentance? Nowhere. Nowhere. After two days, he'll revive us. What is the day to the Lord? Thousand years. Give me two verses. Psalm 90, verse 4, 2 Peter 3, 8. On the third day, he'll raise us up that we may live in his sight. How long has Israel been in captivity? Almost two full days, huh? So this prophecy must be coming to a close soon. Let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. What is the knowledge of the Lord according to Hosea chapter 4? Torah. His going forth is established as the morning. It will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. You know the book of Joel uses those same words, like the latter rain and the former rain. But we will go back to Romans we're up to verse 28. Paul now is talking about unrepentant, unsaved Israel back in his day. Many had been saved, but many had not. And he says in verse 28, concerning the gospel, there are enemies for your sake. Why did the unsaved Jewish people object to the gospel? It went against their man-made rules and regulations. How did they think they were saved? By their own merits, by circumcision, and by working to earn God's favor, God's salvation. Can you earn salvation? The answer is no, never could. It says, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. That means that God promised that one day, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's children would return to God and be saved. Does God ever break his word? No, he never has, he never will. And that's why verse 29 says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Why are the gifts and calling of God irrevocable? Because God does not what? God does not lie. Give me a verse. Malachi. Let's go to Malachi chapter 3. He sounds Italian. He's not. But it sounds that way. Malachi means what? My messenger. Malachi is like really close to Matthew in the Bible. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Why didn't God just cut off Israel for all their sins? Because he promised. And God will not break his word. Let's look at Numbers chapter 23. There would have been no Messiah. 
And God was not going to let that happen. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? What does that promise us? When God says something, you can take it to the bank. So if he says, if you will confess with your mouth that Yeshua is the Lord and believe in your heart that God is raised from the dead, you shall be saved. What does that mean? It means you will be saved. Period. Take it to the bank. Of course, you have to understand what it means, too. But didn't Paul say what? <laughs> that you can eat pork? Nope, nowhere. Does Paul ever say you can't? The answer is yes. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 6. No unclean thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 16 and following. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. What's the temple? It's where God dwells. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them, be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I'll receive you. I'll be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That was 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Yes, that's in the New Testament, believe it or not. I went all the way through chapter 7, verse 1. In chapter 7, verse 1, when it says, cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh, does that mean we can keep some? Major noito, that's right in Greek. How about, how about, I will continue to eat sausage and ham, but I won't eat mice. Is that okay? We'll compromise with God. Read Isaiah 66, you're lumped in the same boat if you're eating a ham sandwich or a mouse. And that is to be struck down by Messiah when he returns. I don't know how you can read that verse and say, but God says it's okay to eat pigs. When he says, I'm going to kill you if you do. Okay. Perfecting holiness. Without holiness, no one sees God. Where is that? That's in the New Testament too? It exactly is. It really is. Hebrews 12, 14. Let's go turn to it. Hebrews 12. It should make us want to know what holiness is and what the opposite of holiness is. What's the opposite of holiness? Lawlessness. Uh-oh. Does Messiah say if you're walking in lawlessness, you're going to heaven or the lake of fire? 
like a fire. That should cause us to lose a little sleep at night, shouldn't it? But Hebrews 12, 14 says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Can you be steeped in uncleanness and see the Lord? The answer is no. It says so right here. You ought to be the child of God. 2 Corinthians 6 says you've got to come out from among them and not touch that which is unclean. Uh-oh. But the New Testament's all about the saints. Who does God call the saints? Hebrews 14, verse 12. Revelation, Revelation 14, 12. Sorry. Revelation 14, 12, the ones with the faith in Yeshua and keep the commandments of God. Let's go read it. Revelation 14, 12. Here's the patience of the saints. What's that Greek word? Hagias. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. What's in between an and and an or? And means you're doing both. Or means... One or the other. Take a pick. That word and is a powerful word. Let's go back to Romans chapter 11 before I get preachy. Verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Psalm 89 verse 34. Psalm 89 verse 34. Bill's going to remind us in a minute about 1 Kings chapter 13. Okay. Because he's right. He asked about it last week to make sure he knew where to find it. But Psalm 89 verse 34. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. What happened in 1 Kings 13? There was a prophet that was told that God had changed his commandment. And he believed him. What happened to that prophet? Got eaten by a lion. The scripture tells us in Acts and Romans that we're supposed to learn from the lessons of the Old Testament. What lesson do we learn from 1 Kings chapter 13? God does not change his commandments. He doesn't change his mind. He does not break the word that has gone out of his lips. So with that, Paul can be absolutely certain that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. If God said it, he will never change it. Yes, Daniel? But shouldn't that bring such comfort that God does not change? Yeah. Like if we served a wishy-washy God, Yes, it should bring people great comfort to know this about God. What if we served a wishy-washy God? What if when we show up at Judgment Day, God says, well, I changed my mind about what I want for salvation? We'd all be in trouble, wouldn't we? We'd be up a very hot creek without a paddle. What if God decided that only blondes can be saved? Or only short people? Or... Or like when I was in the military, I used to always say, apparently the Russians are only afraid of short-haired, skinny people. (laughs) 
Okay. So what's the point here? God gave the commandments and people get confused and they think when there's a new covenant that means God's commandments changed. Has, have God's commandments changed? They have not. The word itself says not a jot or a tittle. And who said those words? The Lord did himself out of his own lips. Where did he say that? Matthew chapter 5. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. And what do all the great commentators keep saying? Well, it was true when he said it. He just didn't realize it was going to be a lie in a couple of years. Yeah, God doesn't lie. That's Matthew 5.18. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away. Have heaven and earth passed away? No. One jot, that's the Hebrew letter Yod, the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, looks like a little apostrophe. Or one tittle, which is just a piece of a letter, will by no means pass from the law of the Torah till all is fulfilled. That word is genitai, which means until everything prophesied in Scripture has come to pass, which is parallel to the new heavens and the new earth. So if, the law of God has been passed away. What does that make Messiah? A liar. It also would mean all prophecy is fulfilled when he said it is finished. And there are people who teach that. They're called preterists, pure preterists. They teach that all prophecy was fulfilled in the first century. There's not a thing left to be done. They're such sad people. And Messiah um, actually expounded on the commandments to make them even like I don't look, don't get divorced. I tell you, don't even. So he didn't lighten the. No, Messiah helped us understand what the requirements of the law are, and what about Paul? Did Paul tell us the commandments are no longer to be followed? Let's look at First Corinthians, chapter one, Daniel. 7.19 In Romans 3.31 he said our faith does not make the law void it makes it stronger. Absolutely. He said in the book of Romans that the law is holy and pure and good. In 1 Corinthians 7.19 though Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Can you read that and say, well, Paul thinks the commandments were abolished when Messiah was crucified? No, because this is written how long after the crucifixion of Messiah? Decades later. Well... You know, I've heard it said that, yeah, okay, Paul kept the law, but that's because, well, he was raised as a Jew and he couldn't get over his bad upbringing. What does the scripture say? Let's go to the book of Acts, chapter 24. It's important. Because we'll see it again when we get to Romans 14. Acts 24, 14. 
Acts 24, 14. But this I confess to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law, that's the Torah, and in the prophets. According to the way, in Hebrew, haderic. What does that mean, haderic, the way? As in the only way, as in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. As in the way as opposed to your own way. Does God allow us to come to him any old way we want to? Are all religions like spokes on a wheel, all leading us to God? No. So let's get back to Romans 11 because I'm getting real preachy now. Verse 30. For as you were once disobedient to God. Oh, oh. What is he saying about believers? Are they still walking in disobedience? No. no. As you were once, meaning you used to be disobedient to God. Yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. That is when Israel refused to repent and come to God 2,000 years ago. God sent the gospel out to the world in what we call the Great Commission of Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and following. So Paul's whole point in Romans chapter 11 is God has not cast off Israel, but Israel's refusal to repent as a whole allowed the gospel to go out to the Gentile world so that the rest of us could be saved. Verse 31, even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. Meaning that the gospel message came out to the Gentile world so that it can come back to Israel. That the Gentile world will keep the gospel alive and keep preaching to Israel. Uh, I don't know that we've done the best job of that. But that was our mission. Verse 32 says, for, what does for mean? Because God has committed them all to disobedience, they might have mercy on all. So Israel's disobedience allowed the gospel to go to the world that the gospel could permeate all through the world, Gentile and Jewish, in both sides of the coin. But Wayne, doesn't that sound like that we don't have a choice? Doesn't that sound like we don't have a choice? No, because the scripture says, for whosoever will shall be saved. But there are some people that pick that verse out. Yeah. They point to it and say that, oh, see here? Oh, I have a choice. I'm okay. Yeah, yeah. If you look at just one verse out of the scripture, yeah. Yeah, you can make almost anything into a doctrine. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. You know what that means? He's a lot smarter than we are. And we should stop disregarding what he told us to do and deciding that we can do it better. 
Yeah, God said keep the Sabbath, but the Pope said do Sunday instead. Uh-oh. Uh-oh's right. Isn't that one way that the Gentiles have failed to preach in the gospel? It's a big way. The second is the oath that the church required the Jews to do. To renounce anything and everything God commanded in order to be saved. How do you go to a people that know how many times they've been sent into captivity for disobedience and tell them, well, now God wants you to be disobedient. Now it pleases God. The God that never changes? Uh, No. We have failed in large part, just as Israel failed in large part. Meaning what? We're all people. All sinners. All sinners. So let's start doing better. Let me hold off that topic for a moment. Verse 34, we're going to quote from the Old Testament. I wonder from which book. Isaiah. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who was who or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. What is the context? Isaiah 40, verse 13. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him, who taught him in the path of justice, who taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Meaning, which of us showed God what was right and wrong? Almost sounds like what God told Job. And then Job said, yep, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You're absolutely right. Let's go back to Job 36, verse 22. Job 36, verse 22. Behold. You're not there yet. So let me hold while you behold. Behold, God is exalted by his power. Who teaches like him? Who has assigned him his way or who has said you have done wrong? Remember to magnify his work of which men have sung. Everyone has seen it. Men looks on it from afar. Behold, God is great and we do not know him. Nor can the number of his years be discovered. And it goes on and on to describe the greatness, the magnificence of God. For us, we can boil it down to Deuteronomy 12. Deuteronomy 12, verse 32. Whatever I command you today. Whatever I command you. Be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it.
God wanted us to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So what did he tell us to do? To remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. If he had wanted us to set aside Shabbat and worship on Sunday instead, he would have what? He would have said so. And there would have been prophecy after prophecy. But there is a prophecy that says somebody will try to change God's commandments. That's the false Messiah, not the true Messiah. So if you come to me and say, Messiah did away with God's commandments, what you're telling me is Yeshua is the false Messiah, not the true Messiah. And I must say, I disagree. Yeshua is the Messiah, the only begotten of the Father. Did he keep God's commandments? Yep. How do you know? He says so in John chapter 15. Yep, in his own words. Okay, let's come back to and finish up Romans chapter 11. Verse 36 says, For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. What's it mean, of him and through him and to him are all things? It means all things were made by him, through him, for his purposes, for his sake. He holds all things together. I didn't do any of the creating, did you? No. So he knows all things, he renews all things, he holds all things together. So what's the point of Romans 11? All in all, that some of the branches have been broken off the tree so that the Gentile believers can be grafted in. But that doesn't mean God cut down the tree. He can graft in those broken off branches if they come back to faith. And he can break us off the tree if we don't maintain our faith. You don't hear that taught today, but is that not what he said? Romans eleven twenty one, for if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. That's not even a veiled threat. That's not even a veiled threat. There's no veil there. And people go, no, no, no. That's contrary to the doctrine of. Well, just stop there. If the scriptures are contrary to the doctrine, which one's wrong? The doctrine. The doctrine. Revelation two and three. Have you read it? How many times does God tell those churches to what? Repent. And then he says, or else. Where are those churches today? You may find ruins here or there, but those churches are gone. What did God mean by or else? He meant or else. Okay, we have finished Romans chapter 11. Ch yes, ma'am. take it for granted, but to really think about, you know, to say that our very life, our being, our essence is held in his hands. Every bit of it. And, and to embrace that, and, you know, people would begin to get an idea of, we can't even comprehend what that is yeah, does it give you a new insight into the phrase working out our salvation with fear and trembling? Yeah. 
Does the scripture say, don't fear a man who can kill the body, but fear the one who can kill the body and cast the soul into the lake of fire? Yeah. And that whole faith thing kicks in, you know? Ah, yeah. So chapters 1 through 5 were about what? Justification. How are we saved? 6 through 11, about sanctification. Once you get saved, how do you clean the sin out of your lives? So chapters 1 through 11 as a whole are about doctrine, the doctrines of justification and sanctification. Chapters 12 to 15 are practical application. What does that mean? How should we live? And I've been asked lately, when we do Deuteronomy, make sure we do the application. What do those scriptures mean to us today? <laughs> I still remember after teaching for many, many years, a young lady who'd been in the, the teachings for a decade at least came up to me and said, Wayne, when are you going to teach on something that's relevant to us today? You keep talking about following commandments. None of that applies to us. I don't know. <laughs> but let's see. What does Paul tell us in Romans chapter 12? I beseech you, brethren. What's it mean to beseech? I beg, I plead, I get down on my knees. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. To whom does God show mercy? Everybody that turns to him, be more specific. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. Yep. That's right. Those who repent. Exodus chapter 20. Let's read God's own words. Exodus chapter 20. Verse 6. But showing mercy to thousands. That means thousands of generations. To those who what? Love me and keep my commandments. Is that any different than Revelation 14, 12? Those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. Because if you love God, you must have faith in God. It's not different. So from the beginning, from the Torah, all the way through Revelation, the scripture is consistent. Go back to Romans 12. Let's finish that verse. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What does that mean? That's what the comma is. Let me explain it. Must be holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That word holy is what in Greek? Hagios, the same word as saints. The same word is Revelation 14, 12, those who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Yeshua. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Does that phrase reasonable service remind you of something that Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 12? 
Let's turn back and look at Ecclesiastes 12. What you're going to find is that Paul agrees completely with Solomon. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. What's another way to say fear God? Have faith in God, obey God, and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. How many fortunes have been paid to psychiatrists by people asking a question, why am I here? What's life about? Why was I created in the first place? What is my purpose in this world? Right here it is in Ecclesiastes. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For, what does that for mean? Because God will bring every work into judgment. That means on judgment day, we're going to get to review all the things that we've done. And what does it tell us in 1 Corinthians 3? Some are wood, hay, and straw that are going to get burned up. And some are like gold, silver, and precious stones that will endure. Interesting. That Greek word, holy, there. Let's go to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to find it's referring to be without spot or blemish. To be blameless in the eyes of God. Go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Matthew 1, 18. And after the birth of Yeshua the Messiah was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. That word holy is the same word. Be holy, for I am holy. God is a holy God. And he expects us to be holy as he is holy. How is that even possible? Because when we get saved, what does he give us? The Holy Spirit to dwell within us. If we will allow the Holy Spirit to lead in our lives, does he lead us into sin or into righteousness? Into righteousness. Let's carry on. Matthew chapter 27, verse 52. Matthew 27, verse 52. We'll start in 50 for context. You'll see it's the day the Messiah was crucified. He dies in verse 50. And Yeshua cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. 
Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. That word saints is that same word hagios. It's the same word from Holy Spirit. So the bodies of those who made themselves holy through the Holy Spirit of God. How many times does the phrase Holy Spirit appear in the Old Testament? How many do you think? Holy Spirit or Spirit? Holy Spirit. Those two words together, Holy Spirit, three times. And it shouldn't be there at all. Because what it says in Hebrew is Ruach HaKodesh, which is the spirit of holiness. That's what we're supposed to have dwelling in us, is God's spirit of holiness. The spirit that leads us away from sin and into a right relationship with God. What are the three times? I'm not going to tell you now because it's coming up in a few verses and I just couldn't wait to give it to you. <laughs> I apologize. So you will hear it again shortly. Okay. Next I would have gone to Revelation 14, 12, but we already have. Again, I have an impulse control problem. And then to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. The verse is 13, but we need to start in 11, so we start at the start of the sentence. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Yeshua the Messiah direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. So that you may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah with all his saints. That word saints, hagios. How do we want to be when Messiah comes? Blameless in holiness. I can't help but think of all those preachers I have heard giving those just heartfelt and screaming messages about how don't you dare keep God's commandments because that means you're trying to earn your salvation. You have to prove your faith by continuing to walk in your sin and believing that the Lord will save you anyway. If you repent, then you're lost. And I listen to them and I just go, isn't that opposite of what my Bible says? That's doctrine that's not based on scripture. It's based on an idea. And the idea is that God is sovereign and if we repent, that somehow takes away from the sovereignty of God. But what does the scripture say? Be ye holy for I am holy. Hmm. Sounds like 
It sounds like the delusion's already going, isn't it? Let's go to First Peter. First Peter. Comes after the book of Hebrews. After the book of James. First Peter chapter one. We'll read verses 13 through 16. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you with the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah as obedient children. Meaning that's the way we should wait for the Lord is as obedient children. What does obedient mean? It means we obey the master. Follow instructions. Not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy. For I am holy. In all your conduct. What does that word conduct actually mean? In your walk. Your halakha. How do you live your life? Peter quotes. Be holy for I am holy. Where is he quoting from? Leviticus 11. But that's about don't eat pigs, shrimp, lobsters, etc. Even mice. Let's, Let's go back and look at Leviticus 11. As we turn there. Have you noticed how many news articles there have been in the last week saying that the world government out there has decided that we need to stop eating cattle and sheep, etc., and eat bugs? That we should start eating bugs. That's good for the environment. What does God say about eating bugs? Don't do it. There's some bugs you can eat. He didn't say you have to, though. Leviticus 11, (laughs) verses 44 to 45 says, Leviticus 11, 44 to 45 says, For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves. What does it mean to consecrate? To do what? Set Set aside, cleanse, sanctify, be holy. And you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves. Those words mean to make your soul unclean with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Did Peter have to tell us this means stop eating unclean things? No, he just puts it in there in context. And what do we do? We go back and look and see where it comes from. We fill in the blanks. Yeah, abominable is not a good thing. Let's go to Second Peter, since we know where First Peter is. Yeah, yeah. I won't even repeat that for the recording because we know that that church teaching is just wrong. Yeah, I do want you to talk louder. I gotta get you started sitting up here on the front row so they can hear you better. 
Yes. You can go to meat and land. Second Peter two twenty one. Second Peter two twenty one. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. That word holy there is the same word, hagios. That same word, the commandments are what? They are holy. Oh boy. And Romans 7, 12. Romans 7, 12. Is there saying that Peter's telling them? You can know the holy way and turn from it. Yeah. But does he tell them to do it or not to do it? It's like a dog returning to its own vomit. In fact, that was chapter 2. But keep a finger in Romans and go back to 2 Peter chapter 3. And Peter specifically warns us about misinterpreting Paul. 2 Peter 3.14 2 Peter 3.14 Therefore, beloved. Who's he talking to when he says beloved? To believers, saved people. Looking forward to these things at his judgment day. Be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. What's that Old Testament Hebrew word? Tamim. That's the requirement for the sacrifices without spot or blemish. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation is also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him as written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their what? To their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Untaught and unstable people. Does that mean they don't know how to read Greek? No, it means they don't have the good background in the scripture. What did the Old Testament teach us? Upon which the New Testament builds. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, you know there are people who will twist the scriptures to their own destruction. Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness being led away with the error of the wicked. So Peter again says, be careful. Do not let them lead you astray. Because it's really hard to get back. And there are lots of preachers out there saying, don't listen to Wayne, he's leading you astray. You've got to walk in your sin. That's what God wants of you. What did 2 Timothy chapter 4 say? They want the, it, the tickling of the ears. But Romans 7.12. Another example of the same word holy. Therefore the law is holy. And the commandment holy and just and good. I got to read that again. Where does that say so don't do it? Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. I can only conclude that Paul's trying to get us to follow God's commandments. 
Let's go back to Romans chapter 12. We're up to verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world. What is that word, siskamatiso? What is that? We've got a note for 1 Peter 1.14, which is, Be holy, for I am holy. Yeah. So do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is the same as Ephesians 4.17. Does Ephesians 4.17 say, Keep walking like the Gentiles? Or do not keep walking like the Gentiles. Let's look. That word conform means to be patterned after. That's what syskematizo means. To be patterned after. Like systemic. Let's look at Ephesians 4.17. Written by the same author. For this I say therefore and testify in the Lord. You should no longer walk. As the rest of the Gentiles walk. Does that mean on your feet? We should walk on our hands from now on? Is that what it means? No, it means stop sinning, right? Turn back to the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. So also at Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Verses 3 to 5. Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. I got a red one out here and go to meeting land. Let's see. Would a good verse to parallel 1 Corinthians 7, 19 be Ecclesiastes 12, 13 to 14? Yes, it would. Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5 says, Grace to you and peace. From God the Father and our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Grace to you is a Greek greeting. Peace, shalom is a Hebrew reading. So Paul's talking to people from both worlds. Who gave himself for our sins and he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He might deliver us from this present evil age. Does he want us to continue walking in the ways of this present evil age? No. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going backwards. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Messiah, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Does Satan want us to walk and conform our lives like Messiah walked? No, he does not. But what does God tell us in 1 Corinthians 11.1? 1? Paul says, imitate me as I also imitate Messiah. Is there any other verse like that? In 1 Peter? Which verse in particular? Okay. 
First Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Who through, him, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. But I'm talking about another one that says, you should walk as he walked. That's 1 John 2, 6. So I read from the wrong chapter. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you were called because Messiah also suffered for us, leaving us an example. There you go. That you should follow his steps. I should have known I was on the wrong chapter. But 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 is also like it. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walks. So we have three different examples from three different authors that tell us the same thing. And they're all in the New Testament. Back to 2 Corinthians to chapter 5, verse 17. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Messiah, he is a new creation. All things have passed away, which means stop walking in your sin. Behold, all things have become new. So we walk in newness of life. Of course, this is right before chapter 6, which says, Do not touch that which is unclean. From there, I would have gone to Ephesians 4, and let's go there anyway. We'll read more than just verse 17. Verse 17 was the one that said, You should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. But that doesn't tell you how to walk, just how not to walk. But if we keep reading... Like we just read in 2 Corinthians, it says in verse 22, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which goes, grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. If you're walking in true righteousness and holiness, are you breaking God's commandments or are you keeping them? You're keeping them. What did you put away? You put away lawlessness. You turned from lawlessness to true righteousness and holiness. Back to Romans 12. Verse 3. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. What does this verse mean? It means to be humble. Be humble before men and be humble before God. Let's go first to Exodus chapter 10, verse 3. But don't lose your spot in Romans. 
Because there's a word in Romans that doesn't mean what we tend to think it means. Exodus chapter 10, verse 3. Exodus chapter 10, verse 3. Pharaoh's problem was that he would not humble himself before God, right? That's what it says in verse 3. So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. So what does it mean you refuse to humble yourself before me? It means you refuse to be obedient. To refuse to obey God is not to be humble. It's to be high-minded like you ought not to be, as we were reading in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Let's go also to the book of Matthew, chapter 18. Verse 47. Matthew chapter 18, verse 4. That's not a seven, it's an arrow. 18, verse 4. Therefore, that's it. Whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So what does God say? The higher you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, the more humble you must be here on earth. Who does God describe as the most humble human being that ever lived? Moses. Okay, now back to Romans 12, because there's a word that keeps appearing throughout the New Testament that does not mean exactly what I always thought it meant. Maybe you're smarter than me. But it says, but to think soberly. I used to think that meant not being drunk. That's not what it means. The word means in your right mind. Clarity of thought. Thinking as you ought to think. To think clearly. Because if you think in your right mind, you will follow God. For Ecclesiastes 12 says what? This is man's all. Let's go to Mark 5. Correct. If you're drunk or doing drugs, you are not thinking clearly. Which is why they chose to translate it as soberly. That means in your right mind. Are you at Mark 5? In the area of Gadara, there was a man who was possessed by a legion of demons, right? It's where God made the first devil to him. Yeah. 
Verse 11, Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountain. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine, that we may enter them. And at once Yeshua gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled, and they were told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Yeshua and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting in clothed and in his right mind. That's the same words as soberly in Matthew 12. In his right mind. And they were afraid. Go to Luke 8.35. Luke eight thirty five. Same story. Then they went out to see what had happened and came to Yeshua and found the man whom the demons had departed sitting at his at the feet of Yeshua clothed and in his right mind. That's the same word. Soberly. About being humble, let's look also at Matthew 23. If we are in our right minds, we will be humble before God. In God's sight, we are so little. Matthew chapter 23, verse 10. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Messiah. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So again it teaches, the more humility you demonstrate on earth, the more God will lift you up when it comes to the end times. And lastly on this topic, James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. There's only two ways to do things, God's way or your way, which is the right way. God's way. In order for us to let it be God's way, what must we do? We must humble ourselves. And be willing to say his ways are the right ways. Back to Romans 12, verse 4. For as we have many members in one body, that's you got many parts. How many parts are there in a human body? Lots. 
but all the members do not have the same function. Oh, that's good. What if we only had feet and no hands? We'd be stinky, okay. All righty. So, yeah, it's my fault, I ask. So we, being many, are one body Messiah and individually members of one another. What this is, is a reminder that if your religion is based on the scripture, we worship as a community. We're not a, just a collection of individuals. We are a community. We worship together. We serve together. We celebrate together. We learn together. We build each other up. When you find somebody who knows more than you do, teach them. When you find somebody who knows less than you, teach them. When you find somebody who knows more than you, learn from them. It's something like that. You can figure it out. Just rewind the date and fix it. I am about the feet comment. I can't get it out of my mind. Okay. But we are a community. Um, the word reya, reya in Hebrew, which is friend, is also the word for neighbor. So all those in a little community like Nazareth, they celebrated together. They worshiped together. They helped each other. They were a community. Verses 6 through 8 of Romans 12. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Aren't you glad that we're not all teachers? That we're not all trying to sit up here and teach at the same time? Each of us has the gifts that God's given to us. When we use them for the good of all, that's when the congregation will be at its very best. Do you know what your spiritual gifts are from the Lord? You've all got them. You're looking at me like, no, but you do too. Some of you are very nurturing. Some are very given. Some are very helpful. Some are beautiful at teaching. There's all kinds of gifts. And we use them together to build up the congregation as a community. Come judgment day, any good this congregation does is on all our accounts. Not just mine, all of us. Because we are all one body. Chapter 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. That's the agape word that you're all so familiar with. It means unfeigned, meaning unpretended, meaning truly love one another. Don't just pretend. And it says, abhor what is evil. What does it mean to abhor? Can't stand it, hate it, turn away from it. You don't want any part of it. Abhorring evil. Let's go look at Job chapter 28. This is twice we've gone to Job tonight. That's got to be a record. 
Except when we study Job, of course. Job 28. Verse 28. And to man he said. Oh, you're not there yet. Let me give you a minute. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Which means if you think you are saved, and you're continuing to live in sin, thinking that God is okay with your sin now, what do you lack? Wisdom and understanding. What verse was that? Matt, it's Job 28, 28. Does yours read different? No, I didn't know where we were. I didn't give you a chance to get there. My apologies. Let's look at it again. Job 28, 28. And to man, that is to mankind, he, God, said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. That's what abhorring evil means. Depart from it. Don't have any part of it. Don't want to be a part of it. So that means basically that wisdom and understanding is the fear of the Lord. When he says get wisdom, he, he mean in another scripture, he means when he says another scripture get wisdom, he means the knowledge of the Lord. Yep. Learn the Torah. That's all over Proverbs. Yep. So let's look also at Psalm 34. Psalm 34. Who was the author of the book in the Bible that says, if you truly have been saved, then you simply cannot walk in sin? That was John. Psalm 34, verses 13 to 14. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. How does God feel about liars? They all have their part in the lake of fire. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Why? Verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their cry. Boy, that sounds a lot like the opposite of Proverbs 28.9, huh? Yep, depart from evil and do good. Psalm 37, verse 27. This one has a therefore kind of attached to it. Psalm 37 verse 27 says, Depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. For because the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. Notice the relations of the saints back to the depart from evil and do good. 
And the promise is dwell forevermore. Does that mean dwell in the lake of fire? No, it means eternal life. That mean we're saved by keeping commandments? No, it means we keep commandments because we're saved. Four more verses from the Proverbs, because Proverbs speaks a lot about this topic. Proverbs 3, 7. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Yep, that's what we read in Romans. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. You cannot fear the Lord and continue in evil. That's an oxymoron. Not possible. Yep, this is wisdom and understanding. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 27. Proverbs chapter 4, 27. We'll even back up and we'll include 25, just because you wanted us to. Let your eyes look straight ahead, and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet, and let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or the left, but what? Remove your foot from evil. Means keep your eye on the prize. Keep your eye on eternal salvation. And don't let your feet walk in evil. Proverbs 14, verse 16. You know what? I got to read 12 just because I made a little big note beside it that, ooh, this is a really good one. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man. But its end is the way of death. Which means, let's go God's way. If you think you've got a better way, then beware. But Proverbs 14, 16 says, A wise man fears, that is, fears God, and departs from evil. But a fool rages and is self-confident. So a fool does whatever he wants to and is very confident that he's still on the way to heaven. He's just wrong. Proverbs 16, 17. The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. Who keeps his way. What's that word keeps? Shomer guards. He who guards his way preserves his soul. Does that? Too bad Solomon did not follow his own instructions. What does Paul say in Romans chapters 1 and 2 about teaching others but not listening yourself? Shame Solomon didn't listen to Paul. Speaking of Paul, let's go back to Romans. Chapter 12, verse 9 again says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Let's go to Jeremiah 9, 3. 
Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 3. And like their bow, they have bent their tongues for lies. They are not valiant for the truth on the earth, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, says the Lord. The fact that they proceed from evil to evil says what to the Lord? They do not know me. First Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. First Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. We may as well go all the way to 12. So read 1 Peter 3, verses 10 to 12. For, quote, He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Is there anything in that that makes you think that sin is okay? Not me either. Since we're right here by 1 John, Let us just remind ourselves once more of verse 10. 1 John 3, verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Because of verse 9, let's read verse 9 right above it. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. That is, you cannot continue to walk in sin if you have been born of God. That's why verse 10 says, this is how you can tell a child of God from a child of perdition. Do they practice righteousness or do they practice lawlessness? And when it says in Romans, cling to good, that's like glue. Clinging like glue. Let's go to Matthew 19, 17 as we're wrapping up our Bible study for tonight. Matthew 19, 17. Is Yeshua the Messiah or isn't he? He is the Messiah. Therefore, he is not a liar. Would you agree? In verse 17, when asked, What shall I do that I may have eternal life? He, Yeshua, said to the man, 
Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. But if you want to enter into life, comma, what? Keep the commandments. Does that mean we're saved by keeping commandments? No. It means what does the keeping of commandments demonstrate? Our faith. It's all of the commandments. That's why it says the commandments. Yeah. When they ask the Lord, which are the greatest of the commandments, what does he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself. Your neighbor is yourself is from Leviticus. It's not from the Ten Commandments. And he says that's one of the two greatest in the law. Last verse, perhaps. Romans chapter 2, verse 10. Romans chapter 2, verse 10. But, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Our time's up. We'll have to pick up next week, Lord willing, in Romans chapter 12, verse 10.